act, declaration, and testimony for the whole of our covenanted reformation as attained to and established in Britain and Ireland, particularly betwixt the years 1638 and 1649, inclusive, as also against all the steps of defection from said reformation, whether in former or later times, since the overthrow of that glorious work down to this present day, by the Reformed Presbytery, read by W. J. Mancaro. Psalm 60, verse 4. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Isaiah 8, verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Jude, verse 3. That ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Revelation 3, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. To which is now added a historical and declaratory supplement. Philadelphia, Ruin Jones Printers, 1876. Introduction. The Presbytery, soon after their erection, being convinced of the expediency and necessity of omitting a judicial testimony, to discover to the world the principles upon which, as a judicatory of the Lord Jesus Christ, they stood in opposition to the different so-called judicatories in the land, together with the agreeableness of these principles to the Word of God, the only rule of faith and practice, and to the covenanted constitution of the Church of Scotland in her purest periods, did therefore, after a proposal for said effect, agree in appointing one of their number to prepare a draft of this kind to be laid before them, who, after sundry delays to their grief of mind, at once cut off their hopes of all assistance from him in that or any other particular, by laying himself obnoxious to the censures of the Church." which the presbytery, in duty both to him, to God, and to his people, were obliged to put in execution against him, while he, in contempt of that ordinance and other means used for his conviction and recovery, obstinately persists in his impenitency and defection. And although the presbytery, few in number, were thus diminished, yet, being still resolved to prosecute their former design, they renewed their appointment upon another brother, who, in consequence of his undertaking, was allowed a cessation from his other public work in order to expedite the proposed draft. And now, when nothing was expected that should retard the finishing of such a necessary work, the lamentable fire of division that had long been smothered unhappily broke forth into a violent flame, whereby the presbytery was rent asunder, and that brother, on whom the appointment was formerly laid, happening to be of the separating party, a second stop was not only put to the publication of this testimony, but the presbytery, from the absence of a brother removed to a distant part of the world, together with the paucity of their number, were almost wholly discouraged from attempting again what they had been oftener than once disappointed in. But notwithstanding of the above, with many other difficulties which we shall not at present take notice of, the presbytery, still considering that even in their present circumstances, when their number is few and despicable, their adversaries many, and such as are in repute in the world, whereby the opposition made to them and the conspiracy formed against the covenanted testimony of the Church of Scotland maintained by them, must needs be strong. 
there is yet a gracious door of opportunity left open for them to attempt, in their judicative capacity, the prosecution and accompaniment of the necessary work formally proposed, and which they could not but judge the Lord still call them unto, while after all the above-mentioned breaches made upon them, he still continued to give them a nail in his holy place and a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra 9, verses 8 and 9. They therefore again laid their appointments upon some others to prepare a draft of an act, declaration, and testimony, and which, under the favor of divine providence, has at length been finished and laid before the presbytery. We only need to observe further with reference to this, that the long delay of what is now agreed upon did not proceed from any design in the presbytery of depriving either the people of their particular inspection or the generation of any benefit that might be obtained by a work of this nature, but partly from the fewness of their number and great extent of their charge, and partly from the great distance of members' residence from each other, whereby they can seldom have access to meet altogether for expediting this or any other work of public concern they have in hand. It is therefore with an eye to the wonderful counselor, when Zion's faithful counselors are so few, for light and direction in the management of this great and important work, that the presbytery have resolved upon the publication hereof at this time for the reasons which follow. 1. Because this duty of bearing witness for truth and declaring against all error and defection from it, and transmitting the same uncorrupted to posterity, is expressly enjoined on the church by the Spirit of God in the Scriptures of Truth. Psalm 78, verse 5, For he hath established a testimony in Jacob, and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children. Isaiah 43, verse 10. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord. Matthew 10, verse 32. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. John 15, verse 27. Ye also shall bear witness. And Acts 1, verse 8. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Number two. Because in agreeableness to the above scripture warrant, it has been the constant practice of the church in all ages, when in such capacity, judicially to assert and declare their approbation of the truths of the everlasting gospel and attainments of the church, joined with the condemnation of all contrary error as appears from their harmonious confessions. And particularly this has been the honorable practice of the once famous Church of Scotland, witness her excellent confessions, covenants, etc., whose posterity we are. And therefore, in duty bound to homogulate and approve her scriptural form and order by a judicial asserting of her attainments, as saith the Apostle, Philippians 3.16, Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Revelation 3.3, 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, hold fast and repent. That, notwithstanding many, both ministers and private Christians have been honored faithfully to publish their testimonies and declarations and to seal them with their blood, in opposition to the growing defections in the land, being, through the tyranny of the times, prevented from acting in any other capacity. Yet never, since the national overthrow of the glorious structure of Reformation, 
as any church judicatory constituted purely on the footing of our covenanted establishment appeared in a judicial vindication of our Redeemer's interest in injured rights. Number four. The unspeakable loss sustained by the present generation through the want of a full and faithful declaration of the covenanted principles of the Church of Scotland, which they, in the loins of their ancestors, were so solemnly engaged to maintain, whereby, as ignorance must be increased, so prejudices are also gradually begotten in their minds against the truth and the purity thereof. And this, through the many mistaken notions at present prevailing among the different contending parties of professors in these nations concerning the distinct ordinances of divine institution, the ministry and magistracy, or ecclesiastical and civil government, and more especially, the presbytery reckon themselves and all professing their allegiance unto Christ and his cause obliged to maintain the testimony of our ancestors for the divine institution and right constitution of civil government according to the law of God as what they found to be and still is indispensably necessary for the outward defense and preservation of righteousness and true religion. And because the very foundation and ends of this ordinance have been doctrinally subverted and the generation taught the most licentious principles concerning it by a body of professed witnesses among ourselves. And this they design to do without, as they are slanderously reported of by some, laying aside themselves or withdrawing others from the study of internal and habitual or practical holiness. <clears throat> Number five, to wipe off the reproach of that odium cast upon the Presbyterian community belonging thereto by some who invidiously call them, call them a headless mob, whose principles cannot be known, anti-government men, men of but bloody principles, etc., than which nothing can be more unjust, seeing, as a body distinct from all others, they have stood still upon the footing of the covenanted establishment, as has frequently been declared to the world, and as the constitution of the presbytery bears so that they can no more be said ever to have wanted a proper testimony exhibiting their principles to the world than the Reformed Church of Scotland, whereof they are a part. Number six. The present broken and divided situation of the members of Christ's mystical body, together with the abounding of error, seems necessarily to require it as a proper mean under the divine blessing for gathering again the scattered flock of Christ, the chief, chief shepherd, to the one sheepfold, and putting a stop to the current of prevailing apostasy and defection. For these reasons, with more that might be adduced, the presbytery find themselves in duty bound to God, the present and succeeding generations, to throw in their small might of a testimony against the manifold avowed backslidings and defections of all degrees of men, both in the former and present times, from the precious truths of Christ and purity of his ordinances, unto the maintenance whereof not only they, but all in these lands are solemnly bound by covenant engagements. And to conclude, let none mistake the Presbytery's aim and intention in the whole or any part of the following testimony 
as if they minded nothing else but magistry, etc., and that to have civil government and governors established according to the rule of God's word was all the religion they intended, without regarding or opposing any other of the prevailing evils and iniquities of the present time. So some are pleased to allege, as has been hinted above, but such might do well to consider that as the sovereign and distinguishing goodness of God is clearly evidenced in giving his statutes and judgment unto his Israel in all ages, while he has not dealt so with the other nations of the world, wherein his will is manifestly revealed, determining his people's duty in all their regulations, so his glory is equally concerned that they receive, observe, keep pure and entire all the ordinances he hath appointed in his word. The sinful prostitution of any of these, or breaking over the boundaries which Jehovah hath set, is an evident contempt of his sovereign authority and violation of the moral law. God requires of his people a universal respect to all his ordinances and commandments. Hence, what is designed by them in this undertaking is equally to testify their adherence unto and approbation of the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of the house of God, and to signify their opposition to and dissatisfaction with all the apostatizing, backsliding courses in principle and practice from that Reformation purity, both in church and state, which, as the attainment of the nations of Britain and Ireland, was by them accounted their chief ornament and glory. That have taken place, especially in this kingdom, since our woeful decline commenced, whereby the witnesses of Scotland's covenanted reformation have been deprived of any legal benefit as well since as before the late revolution, in which the reformation, neither in civil nor ecclesiastical constitutions, was adopted. The intent, therefore, of this work is of very great importance no less being proposed than the right stating of the testimony for the covenanted interest of Christ in these lands, and judicial vindication of all the heads thereof, after such a long and universal apostasy therefrom. A work that must needs be attended with great difficulties, and labor under manifold disadvantages, as in other respects. So particularly, from the consideration of the temper of this age, where nothing almost is pleasing but what is adapted to the taste, not of the best, but of the greatest, and naked truth, without the varnish of flattery and painting of a carnal policy, is generally treated with contempt and exposed to ridicule. And therefore, to remove as much as possible the prejudice of a critical age, who are ready to reject everything as new, which is in some respects singular and not suited to their favorite sentiments, the Presbytery have endeavored in this work to conform as much as possible to the faithful contendings of former honest contenders for the truths and testimony of Jesus, and that both as to matter and manner. And as the grounds of this testimony are not any needless scrupulosities or strange novelties, but precious and weighty truths, 
of the greatest value and importance, and of nearest affinity unto the continued series and succession of the testimonies of the Church of Scotland in former and more ancient periods, so it is the Presbytery's ambition that nothing, as to the subject matter of what is here contained, be looked upon as theirs, but may be regarded as an ancient plea, wherein is nothing but what has been maintained and confirmed by authors of the greatest fame and reputation in the Church, has been asserted by the greatest confessors, and sealed by the best blood of the honored and faithful martyrs of Jesus, so that it may appear the cause and truths here judicially stated and vindicated are not of yesterday's date, but the same old paths and good way that we are commanded to ask for and walk in, though paths that are not now much trodden, a way that is not much paved by the multitude of professors walking therein. This ends the introduction to the Act, Declaration, and Testimony. Now we begin Part 1, the Act, Declaration, and Testimony, Part 1. Containing a brief historical narration of the several periods of the testimony of the Church of Scotland and of the faithful contendings of the witnesses for Christ, particularly from the commencement of the Reformation in these lands down to the late Revolution, with, with the Presbytery's approbation thereof. Plowlandhead, June 6, 1761. The which day and place the Reformed Presbytery being met and taking into their most serious consideration the deplorable situation of the interest of Christ and religion at present in these sinning lands wherein so few are asking for the old path, saying, Where is the good way that we may walk therein? But, on the contrary, an avowed apostasy and backsliding from the right ways of the Lord is by the generality carried on with a secret undermining of Reformation interests by some under more specious pretenses. And further, considering the general deluge of error and heresy that has overrun these lands, and the swarm of erroneous heretics that have overspread the same, making very impious attacks upon the most part, most part of revealed religion, who, notwithstanding, have found such shelter under the wings of a Laodicean church and almost boundless state toleration that they walk on without fear in the foresaid broad way of sin and error. And moreover, <clears throat> all kinds of sin and wickedness so universally abound and pass without any suitable check, that he who departs from iniquity maketh himself a prey together with the woeful insensibility and deep security of all under our spiritual plagues and impending temporal strokes. And yet, while the land so evidently groans under its inhabitants, very few either acknowledge themselves guilty or turn from the evil of their ways, saying, What have we done? Also, considering the horrid breach and contempt of sacred vows unto the Most High, the great effusion of the saints' blood shed in our late persecution under prelacy, which is yet to be found in our skirts, and the faithful testimony they therewith sealed remains buried under the gravestones, both of ecclesiastical and civil deeds of constitution unto this day, so that we may rather admire that the Lord hath not made such inquisition for blood as to make our land an Alcidama, 
than that we are yet under a dispensation of divine forbearance, all which is followed with a deep oblivion of most or all of the memorable instances of the Lord's goodness, mercy, and power manifested unto his church in these lands, the remembrance whereof ought still to be retained, and the same acknowledged with thankfulness by all the children of Zion unto the latest ages. Wherefore the presbytery, amidst their many difficulties, partly noticed in the introduction, as a court of the true Presbyterian covenanted church of Christ in Scotland, constituted in the, na- in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the alone king and head of his church, judicially to commemorate, like as they did, and hereby do acknowledge, with the utmost gratitude, the great goodness and tender mercy of our God unto our church and land, who, in consequence of that early new covenant grant made by Jehovah to his eternal Son, to give him the heathen for his inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession, caused the day spring from on high to visit us. Our glorious Redeemer, that bright and morning star, having, by his almighty power, shaken off the fetters of death, wherewith it was impossible that he could be held, and as a victorious conqueror, leading captivity captive, ascended into the highest heavens, and there sat down on the right hand of God, did very soon discover his cordial acceptance of, and superlative delight in, possessing his Father's extensive grant, by stretching forth the lines of his large and great dominion unto the distant nations of the world, involved in the thickest darkness of stupidity and idolatry. And, in a particular manner, did, as the glorious Son of Righteousness, graciously illuminate this remote and barbarous isle, causing the refulgent beams of gospel light to dissipate the gross darkness that covered the people, which prevailed so far, according to the very authentic historical accounts, that about the beginning of the third century, those of the highest dignity in the nation voluntarily enlisted themselves under the displayed banner of Christ, the captain of salvation, and became nursing fathers and nursing mothers to his church, employing their power to root out pagan idolatry and bring their subjects under the peaceful scepter of the Son of God. This plant of Christianity, having once taken root, did, under all the vicissitudes of divine providence, grow up unto a spreading vine which filled the land and continued to flourish without being pressed down with the intolerable burden of prelatical or popish superstition. The truths and institutions of the gospel being faithfully propagated and maintained in their native purity and simplicity by the Chaldees some hundreds of years before ever that man of sin and son of perdition by the door of prelacy stepped into the temple of God in Scotland. Those early witnesses for Christ, having no other ambition but that of advancing piety and the doctrines which were, according to godliness, were therefore called Chaldees, that is, cultores dei, dei, or worshippers of God. The doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of the house of God being thus established, continued for many years, taught and exercised according to divine institution. 
But in process of time, the church of Christ in this land came to be assaulted with the corruptions of the See of Rome by means of Palladius, the Pope's missionary to the Britons, who made the first attempt to bring our fathers' necks under the anti-Christian yoke, which gradually increased by little and little, clouded the sunshine of prosperity the church then enjoyed, till about the 11th century, when the Romish fraternity fully established themselves by usurping a diocesan premacy over the house of God, after which a midnight darkness of popish error and idolatry overwhelmed the nation for near the space of 500 years. Yet even in this very dark period the Lord left not himself altogether without some to bear witness for him, whose steadfastness in defense of the truth, even unto death, vanquished the inhumane cruelty of their savage enemies. The honor of the church's exalted head, being still engaged to maintain the right of conquest he had obtained over this remote isle, and raise up his work out of the ruins under which it had lain so long buried, he, about the beginning of the 15th century, animated some valiant champions, Messrs. Hamilton, Wishart, and others, with a spirit of truth and heroic courage to contend against the abominations of the Babylonish whore whose labors by the blessing of heaven were rendered successful to open the eyes of some to see and engage many others to inquire after and espouse the truth as it is in Jesus. These, not regarding the fear of man nor the cruelty of their enemies, but as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, enduring hardness, chose rather than desert their master's cause, to offer their bodies to be devoured by the tormenting flames, no more merciless than their hellish persecutors, while in that fiery chariot through the aerial regions their souls attended to the celestial country. And herein also did God frustrate the expectation of that monster of iniquity, Cardinal Beaton, whose memory let it forever perish, and his wicked accomplices, and turned their counsel into foolishness, who by the death of a few zealous contenders for the faith intended the total suppression of Christ's truth forever. But God, having purposed the contrary, made the effusion of their blood the occasion of rousing many from the deep sleep of gross ignorance, by putting them to search into the truth of those doctrines by which these martyrs sealed with their blood so that Jesus Christ, the only true light in the orb of the gospel, began again to shine forth in this realm. Upon this begun revival of reformation, the glory of the Lord went remarkably before his people, and the God of Israel was their reward, uniting the hearts and strengthening the hands, both of noble and ignoble, to a vigorous and active espousing of his gospel and concerns of his glory in opposition to the tyranny of the lordly bishops, persecuting rage and mass treachery of the two bloody Marys, the mother and daughter, who then successively governed, or rather tyrannized, in Scotland. Their number, as well as their zealous spirits, still increasing, they, for the more effectual management of this noble enterprise, entered into covenants to advance that begun work of reformation, and to defend the same and one another in the maintenance thereof against all opposition whatsoever. 
Several such covenants our early reformers solemnly entered into at Edinburgh, Perth, and Leith in the years 1557, 59, 60, and 62. In 1560, the confession of the faith and doctrine believed and professed by the Protestants within the realm of Scotland was compiled and civilly ratified, or allowed of, in free and open Parliament, afterwards sworn to in the National Covenant, Annas 1580, 1581, and 1590. At the same time, some other acts were passed in favor of Reformation, one against the Mass and abuse of the sacraments, another abolishing the Pope's jurisdiction and authority within this realm, etc., In the above-mentioned year 1560, the first book of policy and discipline containing the form and order of Presbyterial Church government was composed, approved, and subscribed by the ministry and a great part of the nobility. Thus, by the wisdom and power of God, who takes the wise in their own craftiness, by means especially of the indefatigable labors of the renowned Mr. Knox, whose memory is still savory in the churches, was this surprising work of Reformation advanced, until it obtained the authority of a law, whereby was not only the Presbyterian Protestant interest ratified, but anti-Christian supremacy and superstition abolished. The church, gradually increasing in beauty and perfection, did, with much painfulness and faithful diligence, labor after a more full establishment of the house of God in all its privileges until, by perfecting the second book of discipline, they completed the exact model of presbytery, which, though they had enjoyed national assemblies for a considerable time, yet was not brought to such an entire conformity to the divine pattern, nor so generally acquiesced in until now, that it was unanimously approved by the assembly 1590, and particularly enjoined to be subscribed by all who did bear office in the church. And at last they prevailed to get it publicly voted and approved in Parliament, June 1592, and also at the same time obtained by Act of Parliament the ratification of all the privileges and liberties of the church in her assemblies, synods, presbyteries, etc. And here we may observe that while this church and nation contended for the obtaining of a legal establishment of the ecclesiastical polity, they were no less concerned to have that other distinct ordinance of God, civil magistry, unalterably settled in agreeableness to the rule of God's word. This appears not only by their earnest contendings against the abuse of that ordinance among them, but also by the public acts of Parliament, obliging prince and people to be of one perfect religion, and wholly incapacitating all persons for bearing any office, supreme or subordinate, who refused, by their solemn oath, to approve and, to the utmost of their power, engage to defend the true religion, as contained in the word of God and confession of faith founded thereon, then believed and publicly professed within the realm, ratified and generally sworn to in the national covenant, during the whole course of their lives, in all their civil administrations. See Acts of Parliament, 1st, James the 6th, 1567. Thus the hand of God was remarkably seen, and his powerful arm evidently revealed in delivering this nation, both from pagan darkness and popish idolatry, 
the memory whereof ought not to be lost, but thankfully acknowledged, to the honor of God's great name, by all such as favor the dust of Zion for her sake, and long to see her breaches, now wide as the sea, repaired. But to proceed. The church's grand foe, envying her growing prosperity, did soon disturb her peace by insinuating himself upon those of superior dignity who were entrusted with the administration of civil affairs, both supreme and subordinate, blowing up into a flame that inbred and rooted enmity which they still retained at the simplicity, strictness, and scriptural purity of the Reformation in Scotland. The then supreme civil ruler, King James VI, formed a scheme for ruining the Church of Scotland and stripping her of those comely and beautiful ornaments of Reformation purity in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, which he had now put on by introducing episcopacy and establishing bishops. This he did for no other reason, says one, but because he believed them to be useful and pliable instruments for turning a limited monarchy into absolute dominion and subjects into slaves, and that which, of all other things, he effected most. And for this purpose, after several subtle and cunningly devised steps previously taken, was designed to do by degrees what could not be done at once, he makes an open attack upon the General Assembly, robbing them of their power and liberty to meet, judge and determine in all ecclesiastical concerns well knowing that so long as assemblies might convene in freedom, he would never get the estate of bishops established in Scotland, and imprisoning and banishing many faithful ministers, members of the General Assembly, who opposed him, testified and protested against his wicked invasion and sacrilegious robbery of the Church's rights and privileges. And having at last obtained the supremacy and headship over the Church, which was granted him by an impious act of a pretended Parliament of his own stamp, called by him for that purpose, proceeded with his design until he had, had again established prelacy and raised presbytery almost to the very foundations, notwithstanding all the opposition made to it by the faithful in the land, both ministers and people. Thus, after several former attempts to this effect, was episcopacy again established and prelates lording over God's heritage advanced imposing their popish ceremonies, which in that pretended assembly convened at Perth, anno 1618, were enacted, and afterwards ratified in a subsequent parliament in the year 1621. And as the father had thus violated his solemn professions, declarations, and engagements to maintain the covenanted interest, so likewise upon the accession of the son to the throne there was no amendment nor redress had but he followed the same iniquitous course, walking in the way of his father and in the sin wherewith he made Israel to sin. And further, obtruded upon the church a service book, a book of popish and prolatical canons, which was followed with a violent prosecution of the faithful contenders for the former laudable constitution of the church, carried on by that monstrous Erastian High Commission Court patched up of statesmen and clergymen, and hereby was the Church again brought under the yoke of anti-Christian prelacy and tyrannical supremacy, which, lest majesty to Zion's king, was also ratified with the sanction of civil authority. To this yoke, oppressing Christ's loyal subjects, many of his professed servants submitted their necks, 
and Issachar alike became servants to tribute for a considerable time. But when the Lord set time to favor Zion came, he made the long-despised dust thereof again to be more pleasant and precious than ever unto his servants and people. And the long night season and thick clouds of adversity, under which his church labored, amidst some day sky and sun blinks of prosperity she at times enjoyed, to issue in the dawning of a day of clearer light, wherein the glorious sun of righteousness shone in his meridian splendor, with greater brightness both in this and the neighboring nations than at its first arising therein, in a gospel dispensation, whose benign influences caused the small grain of good seed, sown by the skill of the great husbandman, to grow up to a fruitful plant, the tender twig to spread itself into a noble vine, and the little cloud like a man's hand to cover the whole hemisphere of the visible church of Scotland, which long ago, as a church and nation, had enlisted themselves under the Lord Jesus Christ as their royal prince, whose peaceful and righteous scepter being now also extended to England and Ireland, they soon submitted themselves thereto in a religious association and union with Scotland in covenant engagements, for reformation from prelacy as well as popery, which they have never hitherto yielded to. Upon this gracious return of divine favor and discovery of almighty power manifested against the mighty agents for prelatical superstition, both in church and state, when from the paucity of those who appeared in favor of truth in the year 1637, small opposition unto its enemies could be expected. Yet their magnanimity in witness-bearing was so followed by manifestations of the divine countenance and favor that both their number and courage daily increased. The National Covenant was again, after mature deliberation, anent both the lawfulness, expediency, and seizableness thereof with great solemnity renewed in March 1638 with the general concurrence of the ministry, noblemen, gentlemen, and others, humbling themselves before the Lord for their former defections and breach of covenant, though at the same time the court faction and many temporizing ministers continued in their opposition, but which was indeed too weak to make resistance unto the cause of God and force of truth carried home with suitable conviction upon the conscience. The covenant being first renewed at Edinburgh, they provided next that it should also be renewed through the kingdom, and for this purpose copies thereof were sent with all convenient speed to the several presbyteries, together with suitable exhortations and instructions for renewing of the same in every parish of their bounds. And by this means it came to pass, through the good hand of their God upon them, that in a little time almost every parish throughout Scotland did, with much, with much solemnity, cheerfulness, and alacrity, renew the same, and publicly with uplifted hand avouch the Lord to be their God. And, as this solemn action was everywhere accompanied with remarkable evidences of divine power and presence, and a plentiful effusion of a spirit of grace and supplication, so the joy of the Lord herein became their strength, and greatly increased the faith and hopes of all the church's real friends, that, as the Lord had begun, so he would also make an end, and carry on his work to perfection, amid the terrible threatenings both of king and court, his majesty being highly displeased that his authority was contemned, and no concurrence of his royal pleasure sought in the renovation of the covenant. But their righteousness in this particular was brought forth as the light, when the legality of this 
and their other proceedings was afterward attested to the king by the ablest lawyers in the kingdom. The zealous contenders for the church's liberties by supplications, reasonings, and proposed articles, for enjoying what they much longed for, at last obtained, before the foresaid year 1638 expired, a lawful and free general assembly, constituted in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the alone king and head of his church, consisting of able members, both ministers and elders, who would not suffer an infringement upon their regular manner of procedure or right to act as unlimited members of a free court of Christ, notwithstanding the constant attacks made upon their freedom by the king's commissioner and protestations by him taken against their regular procedure, which issued in his Erastian declaration of the king's prerogative as supreme judge in all causes, ecclesiastical as well as civil, and renewing all his former protestations in his royal master's name. Further, protesting in his own name, and in the name of the lords of the clergy, that no act passed by them should imply his consent, or be accounted lawful, or a force to bind any of the subjects. And then, in his majesty's name, dissolving the assembly, discharging the proceeding any further, and so went off. But the assembly, judging it better to obey God than man, and to incur the displeasure of an earthly king, to be of far less consequence than to offend the prince of the kings of the earth, entered a protestation against the Lord Commissioner's departure without any just cause, and in behalf of the intrinsic power and liberty of the church, also assigning the reasons why they could not dissolve the assembly till such time as they had gone through that work, depending, depending upon them. This was given in to the clerk by Lord Ross, and part of it read before his grace left the house, and instruments taken thereupon. Then, after several moving and pathetic speeches delivered on that occasion for the encouragement of the brethren to abide by their duty by the moderator, Mr. Alexander Henderson, and others, ministers and elders, exhorting them to show themselves as zealous for Christ their Lord and Master in his interests as he had showed himself zealous for his Master, they unanimously agreed that they should continue and abide by their work until they had concluded all things needful, and that on all hazards." And so they proceeded to the examination of that complaint against the bishops, who on account of their tyranny, superstition, and teaching of popish, Arminian, and Pelagian errors were all laid under the sentence of deposition. And many of them, for their personal profaneness, wickedness, and debauchery proven against them, together with their contumacy, were also excommunicated with the greater excommunication for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." They gave their approbation of the national covenant and prelacy with the five articles of Perth, were found and declared to be abjured by it, together with the civil places and power of Kirkman, their sitting on the bench as justices of the peace, sitting in council, and voting in Parliament. Subscription of the confession of faith or covenant was also enjoined. Presbyterian church government justified and approved, and an act made for holding yearly general assemblies with many other acts and constitutions tending to the advancement of that begun reformation and purging the Church of Christ of those sinful innovations crept into it which may be seen more at large in the printed acts of that assembly. 
the lawful and just freedom which the church now claimed and stood upon, so highly incensed the court, because their Erastian encroachments were not yielded to, that all warlike preparations were speedily made for having them again reduced by force of arms to their former slavery. Yet what evil seemed intended against the church by the king, with his popish and prolatical accomplices, was by her exalted king and head happily prevented, and they obliged at least to feign subjection and yield to a pacification. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.